Welcome back to another episode of the Bearcat Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Meacham, former UC Bearcat player from 1997 to 1999 under the legendary coach, Bob Huggins. And I was fortunate enough to wear the iconic Jordan brand unis during my time. Now, you can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alex underscore Meacham. Meacham spelled M-E-A-C-H-A-M. I'm also on Facebook, LinkedIn, under Alex Meacham. I'm on Snapchat, Big Meach 41. And I can say I'm now on TikTok. All thanks to my producer, Stu. Stu, how you doing? I'm doing great now. Very, very, very good. <laughs> I'm very on, good. I'm on TikTok. Now, I haven't made any TikTok videos. Okay. Okay. However, I have TikTok. I've not fully, you know, jumped in the pool yet. Hey, it's a major step. It's a major step. I'm like walking around the pool. Yeah. Haven't even put my feet in yet. Yeah. Haven't. I'm just walking you can around. Feel, you can feel the water of other people splashing. I so can feel the splashing. You're yeah. going to get intrigued to be like, I'm going to get in the water. I need, I need. And you know, and you know this, um, growing up, I was I was big into dancing because hip hop at that time, you know, they had backup dancers. Mm -hmm. And so TikTok, you know, you got a lot of people dancing. So I might have to relive some of those days of the MC Hammer, I've Big Daddy King. I've you dancing and it, I don't think TikTok is ready. <laughs> it might shut down TikTok. It, they might shut it down. Well, if they, Trump doesn't shut it down, Trump's talking about shutting it down, right? shutting it down. I might need to do a video before he shuts it you down. You Speaking of that... Um, we have just pretty much finished up summer AU basketball. And, and AU basketball is so important from a recruiting standpoint. And, and this is the Bearcat basketball podcast. And as Bearcat fans watch a lot of these players right now, Keith Williams, uh, Jeremiah Davenport, all these guys played AU basketball. And a lot of their recruiting comes from AU basketball. Um, the AU summer session, as odd as it was because of COVID-19, is over now. Yeah. Um, and we had uh, my program, Shining Star Sports, had, I think, uh, 16 teams that were playing during the uh, summer session. Now, Stu, you had a team playing. Um, and the funny thing is, for those out there, Stu's my producer. We're friends. But he has an AU team that's part of a different program. And I swear to you, every <laughs> tournament, my teams would play Stu's team, yep. and it would be a battle to the end. It didn't every matter time. who we had, who he had. Yep. It was to the end, right? Every single time. Like two-point game, one-point game, three-point game, two-point game. I'm like, man, every time I knew like it's going to be a close game. It's going to be a battle. It's going to come down to one play. You did a great job coaching, though. You did a great job because you have some kids that were on that team that definitely have some talent. And you were able to take that talent and, and collectively put them together to buy into a system. And that's not always easy to do. It's not. I appreciate that. It's definitely not easy, you know, but that's a big part of it, right? Being able to put uh, the right pieces together and make everything work out. So. And speaking of putting the pieces together, um, you and I have been working on a project that we've promoted and that we've announced and we just finished up. In fact, prior to us recording this podcast, we have just finished up the audio version of my 2000 release book, Walk of a Lifetime. Very Good, very good. And the whole thing itself was a walk of a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> Just a question. It, it definitely was. No, but it's really good, man. It was definitely fun. Um, definitely glad to be a part of it. So I appreciate you for that. But it was it's it's, it's an amazing book. It is. And we're uh, we're getting set to release that uh, December 
of uh, 2020 of this year. So it will be the audio uh, version of my book, Walk of a Lifetime. And Bearcat fans, um, not only Bearcat fans, I think they will enjoy it if you haven't read my book, the stories, um, you know, behind the scenes with the Bearcats. But you even mentioned this, too, while I was reading it and, and working on it. You were like, this is a must read for any player. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Any player, in my opinion, needs to listen to this audio book. They need to. Um, just the, the ups and downs, the journey that you took, uh, is something that any kid can really relate to at any level. So um, it's definitely a must listen for anybody, even coaches, you know, yeah. even anybody in sports. Um, because for any of us, no matter what path we take, like you even said in the book, um, it's, all, it's all a journey. It's all a walk of a lifetime. So. And shout out to Dr. Simon Anderson, who's uh, passed away. He was uh, my publisher, um, longtime um, Bearcat basketball fan. Uh, we'll talk about him a little bit later um, in this podcast, actually. And uh, Sam Dunn and Mark Brown, who were authors um, in the book. And without them, this, this wouldn't be possible. But this is a great segue to mm-hmm. say this. That walk of a lifetime, that journey that I took, would not be possible without my next guest. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited because not only not, not only excited for my guest to be here, very special guest, but we're actually doing it in person. Like all the interviews I've done with former Bearcat players and folks have been via the phone because of COVID-19 or they're out of town. So this is the first time we've really been with two mics mm-hmm. in front of us. So I'm, I'm super excited. You excited for this one? I'm excited. You think this is going to be a good one? I think it's going to be very good. So I received a call last week. You know, I'm, I'm driving to an AU tournament, and I get a call from a guy. And this gentleman worked for the University of Cincinnati in different capacities, but he worked for the University of Cincinnati for 46 years and eight months. Um, his last, he's retired. But his last job with the University of Cincinnati was assistant to the president. Um, The gentleman's name is Eric Abercrombie, and he called me, um, and he said, Hey, I just want to tell you, I've been listening to your podcast faithfully, and I love it. I love hearing the story about stories about the old Bearcats, and, and with him being... At the university for 46 years, obviously, he got to know a lot of the coaches and players. So a lot of these players he identifies with and remembers the great stories. So he's really enjoying the podcast. So he says to me, but you're missing one thing that's really going to make this whole thing come together. And I'm like, okay, what is it? He's like, I have a great idea for a guest that you've been missing. And I'm like, okay, I wasn't sure where he was going with this. But he said, you know, listening to all the interviews, there's a common theme amongst many of the former Bearcat players that you've interviewed. And the next guest that I'm getting ready to introduce is that common theme. They've all mentioned him and the impact that not only he had on the basketball program, the athletic department, but the players. So Bearcat fans, I'm excited to welcome in this next guest. He served as an associate AD for the University of Cincinnati, and during his time, he helped build a culture that is still in place today in 2020. He has so many great stories from the Huggins era and before, and if it wasn't for him, I would not be alive. 
I'd like to welcome in my father, Bob Meacham. Thank you. How you doing, Dad? Doing fine. Thank you very much. Good. I'm going I'm to call you Dad throughout the okay. podcast. Is that fine? It's fine. Yeah. Uh, first and foremost, I think it's important that I uh, wish you today is your 54th anniversary. Happy anniversary. Thank you. 54 years is a long time, and, and uh, the producer, Stu, here, who we're looking at, he looked at me, and he's like, 54 years? That's on the way to 100. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> so I was, I was talking, so uh, John Brandon, the new Bearcat head coach, um, his assistant, um, called me today because we were working to put together an interview, and he was asking about um, you guys and the anniversary, and I said, it's, it's 54 years, and... Uh, the coach is, is newly married, and he wanted me to ask you, what's the key? So it's time for you to drop some gems here in the jewelry. We call it jewelry of reaching 54 years, and hopefully many more to come. The main goal and objective is to always concede. <laughs> do you do do you want mom to hear this or not? She could listen. If she <laughs> it might. 54 might end. <laughs> okay, concede. That's it? Yes. <laughs> That's the jewelry right there. Okay, Dad, so obviously this is a different interview that I've, that I've done. I'm usually I'm talking to former players, and we're kind of going through not only their history with basketball, uh, but their time at UC. So I want to take a little bit of a different journey with, with this interview. I do want to talk about your early years and what led you to working for the University of Cincinnati and eventually in the capacity within the athletic department um, as associate AD. <clears throat> so let's go back. Um, where were you born? I was born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Tuscaloosa. Home of the rising tide. Uh, not rising tide, or, uh, roll tide, right. in a roll tide. So how far did you live from the campus, Alabama? One mile. One mile. Did you used to go to campus? Did you ever run the campus? Well, actually, they didn't want too many black folks on the campus. Unless you were a janitor or cook. Wow. What? Okay. Now I'm going to ask. What? You, you mind saying what year you were born? Born in 1933. Wow. Stu, you hear that? 1933. My middle brother Fred would go across the campus of the university, and he'd get to the swimming pool, and he'd jump in the pool, and people would see him. They would scream. The N word just jumped in the pool, and they would drain the pool. And his objective in life was to have him drain the pool as often as possible. Wow. Wow. That's wild. And as, as we're in 2020 and we're still dealing with a lot of uh, issues. Um, so, okay, obviously you make your way to Cincinnati. So how do you go from, you know, Alabama, Tuscaloosa, to eventually Dayton, Ohio, correct? correct. So, so how, how did that all happen? Well, the interesting story is it was 1941. If you can relate to that time. I can't, but okay. 41 was my jersey number, but okay. that's about all I can relate to. I was put on a train to come to Cincinnati. Okay. Because the train stopped in Cincinnati. Okay. So this is 1941. I'm eight years old. Okay. By myself. Okay. From Alabama to Cincinnati, Ohio. I got to the Union Terminal. Union Terminal. 
And yep. at that time, there were soldiers, sailors. I think there were two or three movie theaters. All people just everywhere. I'm just a little guy. In the Union Terminal. Right. Okay. I'm just a little guy looking Which for... Which is now a museum, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking for my mother. I finally found her and went to Dayton. And in Dayton, went to a grade school in downtown Dayton. And after the grade school, uh, Fuzzy Faust, the father, not the one who coached at Moeller, mm-hmm. but his dad, saw me play uh, football in a little league. And he came to me and he said, where are you going to high school? I said, oh, Roosevelt or Dunbar. He said, do you ever think about Chaminade? I said, don't you have to pay tuition? He said, yes. I said, we can't afford it. And he said, uh, we can handle that. Can you pass the test to get in? I said, sure, I can pass the test. So I ended up going to Chaminade, and uh, I just played freshman football, but also played basketball. And I was the first black player that Chaminade ever had. Wow. Wow. Okay. So I was, and we won the freshman championship. So I want you to know that we won the freshman championship, won the uh, championship when I was in the Air Force in Seattle, won the championship in Scotland when I was in the Air Force. So three championships. Wow. Was this, wait a minute, was this all because of you or did you just around a lot of good talent? I was, I was a starting guard and captain. Okay. In each case. Impressive. Okay. I can Impressive. shoot free throws. Now, unfortunately, um, we can't Google this and find out if it's true or not, so we're just going to take <laughs> your word for it, okay? We'll, we'll, we'll believe you on that. Um, very interesting stuff. So um, so you finish high school, and you decide to go to college. Went to the University of Dayton. Mm-hmm. And when I arrived at the University of Dayton, of course, just about everybody in the city went to the University of Dayton. Because mm-hmm. it was there, it was close. So it was almost like going to high school again, because I knew everybody. And, of course, this was 1951. So this was during the Korean conflict. So I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I was taking courses, liberal arts, did okay academically, changed my major. Didn't like uh, the business courses, and I was draft eligible. So I decided I was going to go to the Air Force. And of course, mother's passed away, but she could verify this. I went in the morning that I was to leave for the Air Force, and I said, Mother, I'm on my way downtown to the train station. It was like, Three o'clock in the morning. She said, for what? I said, on my way to Texas, basic training in the Air Force. Of course, she about jumped out of bed. She didn't hit me because she couldn't reach me. (laughs) She didn't know? No. Why? Nobody knew. I didn't tell anybody. Why? I don't know. I just decided I was going to go. Wow. I mean, you can imagine. I mean, I traveled from Tuscaloosa on the train by myself, so always independent, Yeah. So I ended up in the Air Force, and uh, after the Air Force, of course, I went to School of, School of Aviation Medicine in Montgomery, Alabama, 
And the interesting thing about that, this was a time, this was before Rosa Parks rode on the bus when I was there. And there was a guy from Youngstown, Ohio, and his mother was a white female and his father was black. And he was very fair and black hair. Funny story was he used Murray's on his, on his hair. <laughs> he had real slick hair. And uh, we're downtown in Montgomery. And he said, Bob, are you hungry? And I said, yeah. He said, let's get some lunch. I said, okay. He said, there's a restaurant. I said, you can't go in there. They don't serve colored people. And he said, let's go anyway. So we went into the restaurant, sat down, ordered, ate. And he said to this waitress, excuse me, I have a question. She said, sure. So you serve colored people? She said, no, we certainly do not. And her face turned red. They threw us out. We didn't have to pay. He had a big smile on his face. He said, I told you. <laughs> he finessed him. I like so that. The, so, so this before her. And, uh, of course, my father was still in Tuscaloosa. So I had the weekend off and decided to go over to see my father. Got to the train station, looked up, and there was this long line for colored only. And, of course, the water fountains were colored only, white only. And the white only line to get tickets was real short. I said, I'm not going to stand that long line. So I went up into the white only line. Sound like a round trip ticket to Tus Tuscaloosa. Guy says, okay, get my ticket. Got on the bus. And to this day, I have no idea why I did this, but I sat down in the front row behind the bus driver, which was verboten. We had cleaned the billets. The what? Billets. They called it the housing where we lived. They called mm -hmm. them billets. And the colonel came through, and we won the prize for having the clean, cleanest area. So we got the weekend off. So guys went out and bought liquor and beer. I didn't even drink, but I had two beers, and I was, I was dizzy. Mm -hmm. So He's feeling it. I fell asleep. I'm right behind the bus driver now. We get to Tuscaloosa, and I wake up, and I look over, and I had fallen asleep on this young white female's shoulder. I remember this is 1952. My uncle, who drove a cab, was picking me up. He saw me. He ran up on the, on the bus and grabbed me. He said, let's get out of here. Mm. Quick. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So from... From the Air Force, from there, Montgomery, I went to uh, Seattle, Washington, to Payne Air Force Base, which is a fighter interceptor base, a jet base. And uh, two or three times I was put on orders to go overseas. And each time the hospital commander said, you want to go here? And I said, no, I don't want to go. He said, okay, I'll take you off. Finally, orders came through for Scotland. He said, would you want to go to Scotland? I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. I said, okay. So he put my papers through, and I went to Scotland in uh, 1952. I'm sorry, 1954. And uh, stayed in Scotland until 1956. Tried to teach Scottish guys how to play basketball, but... Didn't work? They wanted to kick it. Okay. <laughs> they wanted to kick the basketball? <laughs> so I had a hard time trying to teach them how to play, mm -hmm. play that. 
So how'd you end up back in the States? Or where'd you end up? Well, I had uh, three years, 11 months, and 22 days of service. I was in for four years. Okay. So they gave me what they call early release. Okay. So I came, flew into uh, New York, and I had to get a subway out to the base where I was discharged at that time. Now, I got, had a duffel bag. Now, duffel bags weighed 32 pounds because she had everything in there. Okay, so I'm carrying this thing through the subway in New York. Mm-hmm. Get out there. And then uh, I get a train from New York to Pittsburgh and then Pittsburgh into Dayton at that time. So I was separated. And I had taken college courses wherever I was stationed. University of Maryland extension courses and so forth. So I got back to Dayton, to Dayton. I started taking courses at Miami University Extension. Mm-hmm. And I was taking a psychology course, and the psychology professor said, uh, you ought to be on the Miami campus. I had done very well in exams. And so I said, okay. So since I was a veteran and older, I didn't have to live on the campus, so I could commute mm-hmm. from Dayton to Oxford. And uh, I got my undergraduate degree in psychology from, from Miami. Then I was looking for a job. So I'm looking all over the place for jobs, personnel, human rela- relations, human resources. And finally, there was a guy who was a professor at UC. Uh, Oddly enough, his daughter's married to was married to Reggie Williams, the linebacker for the Bengals, mm-hmm. and uh, he referred me to the College of Applied Science at the University of Cincinnati, and I was interviewed. And oddly enough, the man who was the dean of the college was a former colonel. He didn't have chairs in his office; he had to stand. Well, I didn't see any chairs, so I, so I brought a chair with me. Hmm. And he looked at me like, I could see his face, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And I sat down. Well, he interviewed me anyway. Well, I ended up getting the job in the counseling service. And that was 1970. At which time, 1972, Eric Abercrombie came to the campus. And Eric and I met, and we became friends, and I... And I can safely probably call him my best friend. Mm-hmm. And, and once again, Eric's the one that called me and said I needed to interview you. Go ahead. Right. And of course, we were both basketball junkies. Both love bas- right. basketball. Okay. And in 1978, on the campus of the university, the main campus, they decided to have some meetings concerning programs for black students. Black students had complained that they go to different places and they get to run around. Nobody would help them. Or they send them someplace and the person would say, no, you need to go here, you need to go there. So it's very frustrating. So they all complained to the administration. Administration set up a committee and Eric Abercrombie was on it, a guy named Herschel Hardy, who's deceased now, uh, Linda Parker, who's also deceased, a number of people. and. I wrote up a program 
presented it to the president, who was Henry Winkler at the time, the Fonz. Mm -hmm. And so they called me back after I'd made the presentation to the president and said, well, we can't give you too much money, but we can give you some personnel in an office. So I went back and Eric and I talked and I said, let's do it. So we formed the Office of Minority Programs and Services. Mm -hmm. And Eric worked for me, Saul Taylor worked for me, and had a secretary. And one of the persons who did a brief working experience with, with us was uh, Jan Michelle Kearney, who's now city councilwoman. Mm -hmm. Jan, of course, was a Harvard University <clears throat> law graduate. Right. Okay. Was married to Eric Kearney. Right. So that, that was 1978. Uh, 1983, there were interviews for the associate vice provost position. So I interviewed for that, and I was appointed as the associate vice provost and undergraduate university associate dean. And in 1989, there was a reorganization of student affairs. And in the reorganization, I was offered either a job in business administration, athletics, and one other position. So I decided athletics might be my choice. So Rick Taylor, who was the athletic director at that time, mm -hmm. and George Walterman interviewed me and offered me the position. So I took the position at that time. Now, you're looking for a basketball coach. Well, hold on, before you sure. jump into that, um, and you were hired um, associate AD with academic services? Right. At that time. Mm -hmm. So, explain to people your role doing that. What's your day-to-day -day role? Okay. I had responsibility for 450 student athletes. It was all sports. At two academic advisors, and a secretary, and work with a compliance officer and other people. Of course, I had to monitor grades. We had a book room where all the books that student athletes used came out of our book room, and they had to return them after they finished using those books. And one of the things that uh, Joe Steger, who was the president of the university at that time, Joe said, we have to get the graduation rate up in, in football. It's just terrible. So I had done a lot of work in uh, study skills and study habits and helping students improve their grades. So I got the graduation rate up in football to 83% graduation rate. From? 30-something. Well, who was the coach at the time? present coach of Harvard University. Tim Murphy. Tim Murphy was a football coach at that time. Okay. Uh, so that was 1989. And, and, and Tony Yates was the basketball coach at that time. Tony Yates was a basketball coach. And 
at the basketball banquet. Lavertus Robinson and I forget who else. Lavertus Robinson and I were were talking, and Tony came in and said, uh, "I've been fired." Because we all looked at him, went, "What?" So I've been fired. So the next thing I know, Rick Taylor, George Waldman, Bill Motherhill, we formed a committee to search for the new basketball coach. Now, um, really quickly, before you jump into that, um, George Walterman was another associate AD in right. services and compliance, mm -hmm. and then Bill Mulvihill was executive director of UCATS at that time, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Now, all the, all the meetings we had were conducted uh, off campus, and oddly enough, they were at the, universe, I mean, the city of, of Dayton Airport. Had the worst food you ever eat in your life. <laughs> and uh, I guess I can safely say who the, the candidates were at that time. Candidates were Bob Huggins, uh, a guy from Little Rock, Arkansas, whose name I can't remember, but he's an interesting guy. Majerus. Rick Majerus. Rick, who coached Ball State. And a guy who coached George Washington. University. So we did our interviews and eliminated the guy from Little Rock, Arkansas very quickly. He wanted uh, to know how many country club memberships would he get? Would he get uh, free clothing? Uh, could he just go to restaurants and give his name and get, get food? Yeah, those, are, so, those are questions I would ask. So, <laughs> so, Might be the first one. So he was dispatched pretty quickly. Okay. So it was down to Majerus and Hugs and the guy from uh, George Washington University. Well, the guy from George Washington, his wife didn't want to really leave Washington, D.C., although he wanted to, but she didn't. So Majerus and Hugs were the two finalists. Mm -hmm. Well, Majerus was a very interesting man because he had a folder leather folder, rubber band around it. He would open it up. He had every player's name, all their grades, all kinds of information about players, real meticulous in, in everything that he did. Okay. Hugs, when he was interviewed, he was so quiet, we say, can't hear you, coach. You know, he, he spoke so softly. Which is which, very which, ironic. Which is not hugs. <laughs> yeah. Right. So Majerus was very friendly with Don Nelson, you know, who coached the Mavericks, right. the NBA for a long time. They were I mean, they were like closest buddies you could get. They never wanted to be too far away from each other. That's how close they yeah. were. Uh, Majerus, they were building the arena at at UC at that time. Yep. A student came to my office and said, guess who I just saw? And I said, who's that? He said, Rick Majerus. He said he was walking through the construction area with a hard hat on and said, I recognize him. I said, what are you doing here? He said, oh, I'm just looking around. Well, Bill Mulhill and I went to Ohio State because Akron was playing Ohio State. Of course, Huggins was the coach at Akron. And I can't remember the guy who 
ended up going to Maryland from Ohio State, who was head coach at Maryland. But uh, there was a timeout, and the referee just kind of bounced the ball. This coach picked it up, and Huggins walked over and <laughs> took the ball basketball away from this guy. You know, the guy looked at him. Of course, Huggins like six, mm -hmm. six six or whatever he was, and mm -hmm. this guy was like five ten. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> he looked at at Huggins. So we're sitting there and we watch the game, close game. So Huggins would alternate. He'd trap him as soon as they threw the ball inbounds. Next time down, he'd hit him at midcourt. Mm -hmm. You know, he'd do different traps. Right. And he almost won the game. I mean, Akron was not a top-notch program at that time. So right. We, so we went back and. Uh, Talked to Rick Taylor. He said, "What do you think?" I said, "The guy can coach. He would be our, he would be our choice for the job." And so Hugs was offered and accepted the job. Now, let's talk about. And I don't want to breeze past this, but um, the building of Fifth Third Arena, the Shoemaker Center. Um, you and I assume amongst other committee members were against how it was built is that correct what we were against was the capacity my feelings was if we had an 18,000 seat arena we could attract uh, NCAA opening rounds games because you got to have you got to have capacity there uh, well the athletic director was opposed to that he said 13,500 was the maximum and of course, he was the athletic director, so he mm -hmm. he won. Okay. Yep. And of course, that's after the arena was uh, completed, and it was a multi-purpose uh, arena. Right. Right. So they could take out things and have all kinds of basketball court courts. Students could use it to play games, practice, and so forth. At the time, so. But the uh, the site areas and so forth were not very good as mm -hmm. as time went on. People realized that that was not the best built arena right. to have. A lot of people said that. So, um, and this is not one of my uh, great moments, but before the arena was built, um, for years I went to the Tony Yates basketball <laughs> camp, which was held in the uh, Lawrence Hall mostly, right, and then the Field House too. Schmidtfield House. Schmidtfield House. Um, do you remember when they would call you <laughs> when I was at basketball camp? Can you tell everybody about this? Stu, listen up to this one. Assistant coach. Yes. I can't remember his name. He's from Chicago. Mm -hmm. Called me and said... Uh, this was at bas I was at basketball camp, so I was a little kid at Tony Yates' his basketball camp. Go ahead, Dan. Say, uh, Bob, would you come down and get your son? <laughs> I said, come out and get my son. Why? He said, he and Stephen Reese, you and this kid, what's his name? Do you recall? I don't recall, but that name sounds familiar, but okay, you sounds two, like a troublemaker. You two are causing problems. So, <laughs> so, so you were evicted from... <laughs> So, so Bearcat fans, I was kicked out of Tony H's basketball camp as a kid. 
That's true. True story. Right. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Now, Dad, I, I recently interviewed Romel Shorter, and um, he and I were talking at one point when I was attending the Tony H basketball camp. Romel Shorter was my coach at the camp, and he was by far my favorite coach because he was the same height as as all of us. And we talked about and and when I was talking to Romel about it, Romel recalls that you dropped me off at camp one day and you said, hey, Romel, come here. That's that's my son. You make sure you take care of him. And so he said, I, I remember that. I remember that. So Romel Shorter was one of my first coaches at the camp. I, re- I remember that very well. So I get kicked out of camp. You hear that, Stu? But I still turned out okay. All right? Just just remember that, kids out there. You can still turn out all right if you get kicked out of camp. Um, and I don't want to breeze past this either. There's two things real quick. Um as you got the position there at the athletic department, is it true that you were either the or one of the first um, black people to serve as a chief administrator in the athletic department? Well, there was someone there already. Who was that? Oh, uh, gee. He became athletic director at, uh, up in Springfield. I can't remember the college in Springfield. Was that uh, Purnell, Garnett? Garnett Purnell. Garnett Purnell. Purnell was already there. So, so, so you were amongst the first, right? Right. Yep. You weren't. He was the Jackie Robinson, really. <laughs> of the. <laughs> and after Garnett left, I was the only one, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, when I was a kid, um, you would take me to UC basketball games. Um, I think Riverfront first. And then the gardens, was that right? Because before, think, because obviously it went from gardens to Fifth Third Shoemaker, mm-hmm, right? Right. But prior to the gardens, was it Riverfront? Riverfront. Right. You would play down there. Mm-hmm. There were like three thousand people per game. Yeah. There's nobody <laughs> right. there. And they had these school buses, regular school buses, and they would bus students down. And sometimes on the way back to campus, they couldn't make it up uh, the Vine Street Hill. Because <laughs> of the snow and the, the weather? Snow and the weather and, and all the students on the bus. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was yeah. The, the famous game with Kentucky. The stall game. Stall game. That was at Riverfront, right? Right. Um, can you tell Stu, Stu, how old are you, Stu? 25. He has no idea about the stall game. Tell him real quick what the Bearcats did. Okay. Obviously, we do not have the talent to beat Kentucky. Tony Yates knew that. So Tony decided, I'll just hold the ball as long as I can and try and get a good shot. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Mark Doris. Mark went to Hughes High School. Mark's son played at uh, Princeton. You probably know his son. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, Mark was the center. He was like probably 6'5", maybe at most. Okay. But they passed the ball as, as long as they could. No shot clock back then. No. No three-point line, right? Yeah, no three-point line. I think the final score was in the teens. Could you imagine that like 15, in college basketball? 15 or something. And wow. people were mad. I mean, everybody was coaches. <laughs> everybody was mad. I remember... When I would go to the games at the Coliseum, 
you would get so angry at me because I wanted like three bags of cotton candy. <laughs> and you would buy me one and you say, I can't get you anymore. Your mother's going to be so upset. And I'd throw a fit. I don't know why. I just remember that. But I'm between getting kicked out of the camp and all the cotton candy. I was just a terrible, I was a terrible kid. Um, Do you remember we had sometimes had to park? Oh. So far from the arena, it'd be cold, snowing. Oh, I do remember that. Freeze the dev getting to. Do you re do you remember when? And my my father, for those out there, is is. I mean, I got to give him a lot of credit for this. He's a diehard Bengals fan. I jumped off the ship a long <laughs> time ago. Uh, as soon as Chad Johnson was gone, I, I jumped off that Hootay bus. Um, my dad is still on the Hootay bus, right? That's right. Um, he still thinks there's lifetime being there's hope. <laughs> that's that's tough. There's a struggle right there. Um, one time you tried to get me to go to the Bengals game. I think I made it through maybe two quarters or something like that. It was so cold, and I said we gotta go, and you did not want to go. I don't. I do not like cold still to this day. You know that. And we'd go to cold UC football games. And I'd say we got we gotta go, Dad. Remember, I would cry. I would. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you. I don't know how you did it. I'm a warm weather person. I, I couldn't do it now, but then. <laughs> <laughs> you'd set you. Uh, you were you're definitely faithful with that. Um, and we you sat through some, some oh struggling Bengals games and the Bearcats. I was at the Freezer Bowl when they, when the Bengals beat, right. the, beat the Chargers to go to the Super Bowl. That's right. Tell. Once again, Stu's not old enough to know about this. How cold was it that game? Well, <laughs> it was so cold. <laughs> <laughs> Man. This, this is the truth. I had a thermos of rum. Never got a chance. My hands were so cold. I never had a chance to get to the rum. But the water that was in the, in the rum froze. Mm. I think it was. How cold was it that game? Is that is that the? I, I'm sorry, I don't I don't have knowledge of this, but was that the coldest football game ever, or one of? That was probably the coldest. The wind chill was somewhere. I don't know. Twenty below. Mm. But it was so cold that some of the Bengals linemen, you know, they all came out in short yeah. sleeves. Mm hmm. All of them. Hmm. And the San Diego Chargers. I mean, they had all they could get on. And they looked at when Munoz and all those guys came out, the big linemen, yeah. in short sleeves, and they go, oh, my God. Like what is, yeah. And Kenny Anderson played like it was the summertime. I mean, he was, he was unbelievable. Now, how many, okay, how many people were at this game? Because there's, there's no way you would be able oh, to get me to go to that game. There was a lot of people. There had to be at least 50,000. I mean, you know. That is unbelievable. Like, you couldn't. No, I don't care how good the team is. There's no way you could get me out. But that was a that colder game. game, believe it or not. What? That was a colder game, actual temperature. They played the Steelers one time. It was colder in actual temperature than it was at the Freezer Bowl. The Freezer Bowl had the windshield. Plus, it was all this snow. You, you know, that, that, well, that leads me to say this too, Dad. Um, we're recording this podcast, um, and, and right behind us, where I grew up here, um, there used to be a basketball court. Yeah, right here. You guys put up a basketball hoop. I don't know if you remember this, but when I was a kid, it would snow, and I would still go out there <laughs> in gloves, and I would shoot. 
And this is no joke. When I would shoot, I would, and, and I would just dribble around and play, I would visualize myself playing for the Bearcats one day. I'd do like a fake starting lineup, like, and now for the Bearcats, which, I mean, I never started, but I just, I, I remember that shooting around. That was the only time you can get me out in the snow if I, if I could, you know, shoot around and play some hoops. But anyway, one of the reasons I love basketball is because it's indoors. You don't have to worry about all the, you know, crazy <laughs> conditions. And we were talking about the building of uh, the Shoemaker Center. Now, um, I, I want to get into... We have, we still have, but we had for years season tickets to Bearcat, not only football, but, but basketball games. Mm-hmm. And when the arena opened, we had those um, seats that overlooked, we were right close to around center court, right? And mm-hmm. we were at that first overhang. We were like the first couple rows. You had four seats. And, and I'm going to tell you, you know, I don't know if, you re- if I ever told you this, but because of our seat placement, Still to this day, when I go watch basketball, I have to sit across from the bench. I cannot sit behind a bench and watch a basketball game. So going to so many games with my father growing up, we would get to see Huggins, see his face, see how he would interact, see Rick Patino or, you know, whoever would come in, Tubby Smith, whatever coach that was, you could see their facial expression. You could see when Eric Martin got kicked out of the game that one time, you could see him walking, taking his jersey off. and We were sitting behind the bench. We couldn't see those things. So I became obsessed with watching that. So still to this day, when I go to high school games, college games, I have to get tickets where I can see, you know, the actual bench. So those, those seats were, were definitely special. But I think in all my years, even playing – the one game that sticks out to me the most um, at UC in the arena is the game versus Minnesota, the opening game. Um, walk-on football player Steve Sanders hits the game-winning shot versus Minnesota, top-ranked team in the country, the opening of the arena. Uh, great pass, by the way, from Andre, Andre Tate. I interviewed Andre Tate, and he talked about making that bounce pass. That was the only way he could get it to Steve. Steve wasn't even the first option. He's one of the last options um, to score. But uh, you remember that game, and that was the that was the opening of the arena. Hugs's, you know, first game, and we we went crazy. How much of that game do you remember? I know it was a while back, but oh, I, I remember the whole game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Steve Sanders. I, I do want to, and I, and eventually I'm going to get Steve Sanders to come on the show and kind of talk about his career. Did you? I mean, you knew him in a different capacity. I mean, he was both football and basketball. He was basketball. a football player primarily, right? You know, yeah, yep. and uh, good guy. He was a good person. I like Steve a lot. From Cleveland, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. An interesting thing is, like you know, as, as as we watch these these players, you knew them on a different level. They would come to your office and you would talk to them about, you know, their academics, graduating, what they need to do to stay eligible. Here's the uh, story. I think I, I don't know if I ever told you the story or not, but this one really gets to me all the time. There was a guy from New York State, six foot four. Probably 240, 250, run like a deer. Great player. He was constantly depressed. He was depressed to the point he'd come to my office and he'd sit down. Now, here's this guy, 6'4, 240, whatever it was. He'd end up in my arms 
and we would both be wet from his tears. He would cry. He was so depressed. His sister came from New York to, uh, to see him and to find out what she could do. Well, he got so depressed, I ended up getting him over to University Hospital. And of course, they can only keep you 72 hours while they do an evaluation. And he had to release him. So he came back. There was a football game that Saturday. He was like the starting linebacker. He played the game of his life. I mean, he ran from sideline to sideline making tackles, bringing down running backs. Unbelievable. I get a call about 6 o'clock that night. He had committed suicide. After the game. After the game. Mm. Found a gun. Some. Unfortunately, a number of players, particularly from New York City, had guns in the residence halls. Mm. <laughs> yeah. hmm. So he got one and committed suicide. Jeez. But he played the game of his life. Wow. Yeah. But he was always depressed. I mean, just break out into tears constantly. So so you served in, in a capacity of, uh, I mean, you have a psychology you know, degree doing that, right? You know, people coming in and talking. And a lot of the players that have come on the podcast, a lot of the former basketball players that have talked about you, um, you know, are very thankful for your mentorship, um, helping them graduate. So you wore a lot of hats beyond academic services. You agree with that? Yeah, uh, I mean, I became very friendly with a lot of those players. Uh, you mentioned Romel. Romel Shorter was a funny guy. Oh, I mean, one time he, he so they were playing funny. down at the Coliseum, and Romel came down the court dribbling, and for some reason he decided to go behind his back and threw his legs, and he jumped up and down. Yep. And, and Huggins went like this. So I said later on, Romel, I said, what did what does coach say to you? He said, don't ever do that again. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I remember Ro. You said he's a, he's a, now he's definitely a funny guy. A great, great, great guy. Uh, Another thing was when uh, Tony Yates became coach, Tony got a bad deal because Prop 48 oh, yeah. had just started. Yep. So he recruited some great players, but they, they were Prop 48, so they couldn't play. So they ended up playing intramurals for a year. Well, yeah. he did, they could not play against competition. I mean, they're playing against college college students, you know, who were nowhere near as skilled as they were. When but, I interviewed Lou Banks, he talked about going to the intramural games and playing, and he said this, it would be packed as intramural games. You know, he and the other guys, I think Keith Starks was affected Keith by Stark, it. Keith Starks, Levertis. There were several guys. And, you know, what's um, – What's crazy is recently John Thompson passed away, legendary Georgetown coach. Well, he's one of the reasons that that rule no longer exists. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. He walked out of a game in um, kind of a boycott and a protest of the Prop 48 rule, which was affecting a lot of black players around the country. So him, um, what was Temple's coach? Um, John John Chaney were the kind of the leaders um, of getting that rule out and so uh yeah thankfully for them they were they were able to get rid of that rule and that you're right though there you know you look at that class that tony yates brought in which eventually hugs would coach oh yeah they were all prop 48 and it could have been a different situation because tony yates's last year um 
there were so many close games that that team lost if a couple things went the other way and he wins some games. Yeah, they might have been 15 and 13 or something like that. Mm-hmm. It, would, it, it might have been a different different story. Yeah, because Hugs used to say, how, how could he not win with these guys? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, do you Do you take pride in that you were part of that process of pushing to, to have Coach Huggins um, as the head coach? Because if you think about it, Coach Huggins in a lot of ways changed the landscape of, of athletics um, at the University of Cincinnati. I mean, you look today at the new arena – um, how energized people are. You look at football and what Coach Fickle's doing, an amazing job. But you can rewind and say that all kind of started with Huggins. Huggins kind of got the ball rolling. You agree with all that? Yeah. And not only that, uh, Dick Vitale, when Huggs was hired, he talked about what a good hire that was. Mm -hmm. He was really favorable about Huggs. He said, Huggs is a good coach. Yeah. And uh, he was. The thing about Hugs that people may not realize is Hugs is a loyal person. Very, very, so, if, very much if so. If you're part of his team, he's going to back you mm -hmm. no matter what. Yep. Yeah, he's, he's behind you all the way. Yep. Yeah. So I always like that about him. And, and, and people always ask, why do his former players love him so much? And I think that right there, what you said, is one of the main reasons why. Yeah. And in the, the years that we worked together, Hugs and I, I don't think we ever had any kind of a problem. Mm -mm. Only, only one time there was one one incident where uh, I can't remember one player was having problems, and Hugs either came down to one of the assistant coaches and jumped all over one of my assistant's advisors. So I called Hugs up and I said, "I need to talk to you." And he said, "What about?" I said, "I need to talk to you." He says, okay, come on down. So I went down to the office, and with Sharon Smith was his advisor, very bright person, good, good advisor. So we sat down, and Hugs looked at me, and I looked at him, and we sat there for about three minutes looking at each other. And he said, no, what's the problem? I said, uh, I do not come down and tell you how to coach basketball. I don't expect anybody to come down and tell me how to do academics. I agree. And that was the only time we ever had any kind of face-to-face -face mm -hmm. discussion. You know? Otherwise, the athletic director always said, you know, you and Hugs are friends. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. we are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you did you stop down when you were in your your role at UC? Did you stop down at uh, basketball practice? Football practice oh. a lot. Well, my favorite story about football practice with Tim Murphy. It's a guy from uh, Florida, running back, and another guy. They had gotten books out of the bookstore, in our bookstore in the athletic department. Mm -hmm. They used the books. Then they took them to the bookstore and sold them to the bookstore. Mm, a little hustle going there. Okay. So the lady in the bookstore who knew me real well called me and she said, Bob. Since I know you, I want you to help me solve this problem. So I don't want to call the police. She said, I had some student athletes come and sell me books. I said, you have their names. And she, she, she gave me the names. I said, thank you. So I went to practice. 
and Murphy was coaching. He looked up and saw me, and I could tell by his face. He went, oh, no. <laughs> was, I don't know why, you know. Here I am probably uh, at that time, 5'8", maybe 175, 180 pounds. I grabbed both these guys by their shoulder pads. So you're going with me. Mm-hmm. And Murphy said, I said, I got a problem. I said, go to your room, get the money, take it to the bookstore. Otherwise, we're calling the police. Mm. And they did. Now, the interesting thing about this one guy that's running back, it was a good guy. He ended up coming to my office. And he said to me, I had a lot of books in my office. He said, you read those books? And I said, yeah. He said, uh, that philosophy book? I said, yeah. He said, can I read it? And I said, sure, take it. So we started to discuss things, and we became friendly. Well, he graduated, and he just was sure he's going to be an NFL football player. Yeah, he was a good running, running back, but uh, I mean, he wasn't NFL. Mm-hmm. But he went to the Canadian Football League. I told him, I said, now, when you get up to Canada, I said, you never know what happens in life. I said, you can be walking down the street, step on the curve and twist your ankle, break it. Doesn't heal and you never play again the rest of your life. Never play football. I said, what are you going to do then? So you have to complete your degree. Mm-hmm. So he did complete his degree, went to Canada, played for a while, got cut, came back. And he said, you told me if I ended up leaving football, you'd help me get a job. <laughs> I said, okay. So mm-hmm. I called Kroger. Mm-hmm. And uh, he interviewed. They gave him the job. And to the best of my knowledge, he's at the general office downtown now. Oh, wow. I haven't seen him in quite a while. But oh. First, he, went to, he started with Kroger. Then he went to Home Depot, who gave him a big increase. And he mm-hmm. went back to, to Kroger. Hmm. Okay. But that's, yeah. At least he, he he completed his degree. Right. Now, how long how long have you had season tickets for football and basketball? Probably nineteen seventy eight, seventy nine. So. so I was born in seventy six. Yeah, you're, yeah. You were three years old. Yeah. Wow. Did you mm-hmm. take me to games when I was just a little? When I was a little pup. <laughs> yep. Hopefully it wasn't cold because I was leaving. <laughs> I was not about that life. Mm-mm. Did not like that. Um, now, I want to jump into and get back to basketball specific. Um, Huggins is the coach. Uh, the energy for the UC basketball team is really picking up, not only locally but across the country. Um, Hugs kind of, I think, strikes gold with getting Herb Jones. Right. Well, you know, you could say that's the, the junior college All American first team. <clears throat> yep. You, you know, you could say that that's his first big recruit. And then, um, you know, Herb, and I think um, the success with that leads to a new crop of guys coming in. Nick Van Exel, Corey Blunt, Eric Martin, that whole group. Terry Nelson. T. T- Nell. We can go on and on. You know, um, T-Rat was, was part of the earlier class. Al- but Alan Jackson. A.D. So... That class becomes, um, in my opinion, that class then becomes the group that takes Bearcat basketball to to another level. It takes them to, to national. I mean, at one time, obviously, 61-62 with the national championships, you see it was very popular at that point. But 
this is a new age and you know the reason that bob huggins was hired is now all those things are happening you know and herb jones i interviewed herb jones and he told me that his senior year they were all in the weight i believe he said like the weight room and he told the guys he told t-rat uh, terris gibson and some of the other guys we're going to the final four this year and it proved to be very prophetic um that team went on to reach the final four beating memphis Four times in a season, which is unheard of. I was in every game in sports. Talk about that season a little bit. That was a magical season, and you were at the Final Four, right? And you didn't take me, but go ahead. <laughs> the, the interesting thing about the Memphis games was, I think it was the final time we played Memphis. Penny Hardaway in the regular season or in the tournament? This is a tournament. So that was um, the game leading up to Michigan. So that was the Elite Eight game, correct? Right. So Van Exel and, and Penny, they're going at him. Nikki is eating him up. And I can't tell you the language that Nikki was using as he <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> as as he dribbled mm-hmm. against Penny against Penny. Mm-hmm. But uh I mean they were unbelievable games. I mean the energy the was so high. Unbelievable games. Yeah. And a lot of times, I mean, you traveled with the team. You yep. sat on the bench sometimes. So, well, the funniest story I think I could ever tell you, we were playing Memphis, at Memphis. And, of course, Memphis hated Huggins. I mean, they hated him. Mm-hmm. So they're all over Huggins. I'm on the bench sitting right next to Huggins. Well, Mike Reichenecker, remember him? Yep, number 41. For, first. The only two 41s. First seven-footer. Yep. Well, Mike had these big ears. Yeah, I remember that. Well, the student section at Memphis, I don't know. This guy was probably innovative, the student. Mm-hmm. He had two saucers. Huggins called Mike into the game, and the student picked up these two saucers. And held them to his ears like Mike. <laughs> and everybody cracked up. Even, uh-huh. even Mike was laughing. <laughs> yep. But they, was, they were on Huggins so bad. Mm-hmm. I mean... Finally, you know, he would never say anything, but he would just, it was boiling inside. Mm-hmm. He turned to me and looked and he said, uh, if I get thrown out, do you want to coach? <laughs> <laughs> I said, sure, right on. <laughs> yeah. Good old, good old Huggy Bear. Uh, that final four, um, obviously they lost to Michigan. If they oh. they beat Michigan, they, they end up playing Duke for the national championship. Which, well, you know what happened in that game. Which Just game? before halftime, the Michigan game. Um, you talking about with Corey Blunt? Just, or you no, just about... before halftime, uh, Buford's coming up to court with the ball. Okay. Gets it stolen. That's the two points that was the difference in the game. Mm-hmm. I think it was 75-72. Because we, 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 we were up by three at half, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, and, and Herb and I were talking about this in the podcast, the first possession of the game, um, they threw a post pass to Corey Blunt. He kind of spins to go to the basket, and they call offensive foul on Corey Blunt, which was a terrible call. Final four game, and you call a hook as the the bad call. Corey had two fouls in that first half. And, and Herb, Herb believes that if Corey did not 
get called for two flat fouls early. He plays the entire first half because Michigan was killing the Bearcats on the boards the, the entire game. But UC was turning – they were making Michigan turn the ball over quite a bit. Herb seems to think like they would be up – the Bearcats would be up 10-plus going into halftime, and it's a totally different ball game. So where did you sit for that game? I never – I don't even know this. Oh, this – you won't believe this. I sat with – the most famous coaches in college basketball. I'm right in the middle of them. Tark. Tark was there. Uh, Gashevsky. Coach uh, K. Because they, they didn't play until the next next game, I think it was. Played Indiana, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And I can't remember the other coaches, but once one coach turned to me and said, uh, that kid, Van Exel. I said, yeah. He said, he's a pro. Yeah. And he said he'd definitely be in the in the NBA. And then uh, coming up the stairs was uh, a guy played for the Bulls from Dayton, went to Shamrod High School. Uh, Hunter, Hunter, Hunter. Um, the now coach of the uh, Rod, is it Rod Hunter, Ron Hunter. Tell me about the guy who coached. Played for the Bulls. With with Michael Jordan. Oh, Harper. Harper, Ron Harper. You talk about Ron Harper. Okay. okay. Played now, at Miami Oxford. Right. Yeah, Ron now, Harper. Now you know Ron went to Chaminade High School. I didn't know he. Yeah. I did not know he went. You sure he went to Chaminade? I know he went to Chaminade. I know why I know he went to Chaminade. One, he was a chronic stutterer. Yeah, I remember he stuttered. Well, he still stutters, but yeah. And guess who his tutor was? Tiffany. Our cousin Tiffany. So he's coming up the stairs, and I said, Mm-hmm. Ron, he said, yeah. I said, my name's Bob Meacham. You know Tiffany? Oh, yeah, oh, Tiffany. So we talked for quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I talked to all these coaches doing, doing the game back and forth. We'd, we'd go. So mm. that was a lot of fun. You don't remember this, but you, um, the Final Four ticket that you received, you got Nick Van Exel to sign it. So I still have that. Do you? Oh. Yeah, I still have that. Signed <laughs> Nick Van Exel Final Four ticket. You take all my stuff, I know. <laughs> well, you would, yeah, you'd lose it or something like that. I had to make sure I, I kept that. I, I valued that. Nick Van Exel is still, Dad, my favorite UC basketball player of all time. My my, the the person that I growing up that I would imitate was Roger McClendon, because I loved when we went to the Coliseum Riverfront and we watched Roger play. I just watching him shoot like I loved Roger. I remember I used to kick my feet up like him. <laughs> When he would shoot, but then when Nick Van Exel came, um, he was just because he's you know, a shorter player, fearless. Um, oh, fearless! I'm, nothing, nothing scared him. I mean, he <laughs> and his hands were. People don't know his hands were so are so big. Just the way he holds the basketball, and and you, I mean, if you, I know Stu right here is a huge uh, Kobe fan. Um, there are many videos of Kobe talking about Nick Van Exel. I don't know if you've ever seen those, but uh, Kobe had a tremendous amount of respect for Nick because, you know, he would play against him and practice, and, you know, he talked about how big Nick's hands were. And that, that really helps when you, if you're a basketball player. I mean, you look at Kawhi. Kawhi blocked that shot the other night with his middle finger. Did you see that? Like, who, who does that? Right? Michael Jordan. Hands were so big he could control the basketball. Well, I think Nelson, Kawhi has the biggest hands I've ever seen in my life, except – a former UC player. Oh, Mike Harris. 
He had the biggest Mike. hands. If you shook hands with him, his hands would be up this far in your arm. Yeah, New York. He's from New York, right? Right. Yeah, Mike. Good old Mike Harris. Um, now, let's let's get to uh, one of the most important parts of this podcast, and that is: Did you ever, ever imagine that kid that got kicked out of basketball camp? <laughs> That would buy three cotton candies at Riverfront would end up playing for the Bearcats. Yes. <laughs> really? T- tell you why. Okay. When you were playing uh, grade school basketball, referees would come to me and say, Is that your boy? I said, Yeah. He said, Where did he learn how to play basketball? I said, Well, one, he dribbled a hole in the basement floor. <laughs> True. Constantly. Said he is he can play, you know. Hmm. So I remember you told one of your teachers we were playing Saint Mary's in Hyde Park. Remember okay. that? Grade school? I, I do remember that. You told one of your teachers yeah. to come watch you play. Really? Mm-hmm. And uh you had a really good game. Mm-hmm. Of course you did get thrown out at uh Saint Ursula. Yeah, you had to bring that up, bro. That's cool. That was old shit. <laughs> but <laughs> We were playing at Aiken High School. Playing at Aiken High School one time, and Eric Abercrombie and I are sitting underneath the basket. Was this where you guys almost got kicked out? The guy was going to call the <laughs> call the police on us. <laughs> Go ahead. Because you came down the floor, tried to do, do a layup, mm-hmm. and this guy hits you, wham! And you turn, looked at the referee, and he went like play on. Yeah. And we we all over the referee. Can you see that? Are you blind? Watch the game. You're missing a good game. We're going on and on and on. Yeah. He finally his face turned. Ready turned. He said, "If you guys don't shut up, <laughs> come here. You had scored out the game." Yep. Yep. I think I remember that. Yep. <laughs> remember, uh, I, and I can't go this podcast without mentioning uh, my guy Willie C. Jackson um, oh. for Bond Pad. So growing up, I played. Uh, for an organization called Bond Pad. It was a kind of a neighborhood, would you say, rec team. Um, really where I learned, that was one of the first opportunities I think I had to learn organize, you know, basketball. And you guys uh, put me on that team. I don't know how that came about, but Willie C. Jackson was one of my first coaches. Mm-hmm. Great, great guy. Oh, he had more patience with you than anybody in the world. I mean, mm, call me he, Buckethead. <laughs> I just, think, I just think my name was Buckethead. He was going, yo, Buckethead. He'd yell at me so much. Because you tried to walk out of a game, and he went after you and grabbed you. <laughs> Buckethead, sit down. Get on. So what we've learned on this podcast is what a terrible kid I was growing up. <laughs> right, Stu? It's like, how did this kid? So, um, so we go from I'm sitting in our season ticket seats in the Shoemaker Center, um, right, that half court, that overhang for years to now I'm sitting on the bench. So what was that like for you? And we've never talked about this. And the, and the good thing about this podcast is I refuse to give you any questions, so we have not prepped for this. I know you asked me to give you some questions, but I'd rather it be very or- organic, which it is. But um, so for years, I sit with you in those seats. We had four seats. Remember that? We had four uh, tickets, so usually you would bring Art Hall or somebody, Alan Costner, and then I would bring a friend. Um, but now, for the next you know two years, I'm sitting you know on the bench. What was that like as a father, having me now sit down there? 
Well, the, the interesting thing, now remember, that's the only time your mom ever went to a basketball game. <laughs> True. I totally, I mean, I even, though totally she's, yep. even though she's from Indiana, their home of basketball. Yeah. She, she that was the only time she went. Yeah. And uh, she would cheer, you know, she would jump mm -hmm. up, you know. I was more subdued. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And a and, uh, couple times I came down on the floor and you guys would come out for warm ups mm -hmm. and you'd run by and slap my. <laughs> Slip my hand as you're going on the court. Well, I, I didn't remember that. I probably did. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Sam Dunn would be up in the student section. Oh, yeah. And you can hear Sam all over the arena. Oh, my gosh. Put Alex in hugs. Put Alex in hugs. <laughs> yeah, my roommate and also one of the authors of my book, Walk of a Lifetime, um, I would give him. So we were, we were given like four tickets per game. Unless it was a really, really big game and it was, you know, usually a lot of our games were sold out, but sometimes they would take away some of my tickets to give to Kenyon Martin if he'd have, you know, a relative coming in from Dallas or whatever. But Sam would always be there and Sam always wanted me to get in the game and he would he would definitely let um, I think he was the one of the one of the reasons that the, the crowd started chanting my name. I think he led that. I think he paid people to to chant my name. <laughs> How, was that was that odd that people started chanting my name for me to get in? Well, here's one. I don't know if you remember this or not. At the old, not old, but the arena at Memphis. Mm -hmm. That beautiful arena they had. The pyramid. Pyramid. Yeah. Somebody up, way up in the stands I, said, Alex, me, jump. Yeah, yeah, I do. And everybody turned around. How do they? <laughs> I do. I, I talk about it in the book. I, I talk about that. That's still to this day. I, I have no idea because all of our fans were sitting behind the bench. I don't. I don't know who those people were up there. That's, that's something we need to find out. Um, so here's another funny um, twist of things. Um, when I was playing, it was funny because um, here I go. You know, nobody really knows me on on campus. Um, you know, I'm not a well-known player like a Kenyon Martin or Reuben Patterson, Melvin Levitt. But now I'm part of the basketball team, and people start to know who I am. And everywhere I went on campus, I was always, hey, that's Bob and Grace's son. <laughs> you know, because you worked at the university for years. Mom obviously worked at the university for years as well. So everywhere I would go, whether it was in Tangeman Center um, uh, or just whatever, Lawrence Hall, wherever I People always be like, oh, there goes Bob and Grace's son. And after a while, I'm like, man, would you quit? Like, I'm Alex. But now it's funny. Mom told me one day that after all those years of me being Bob and Grace's son, that you guys became Alex's mom and dad. <laughs> right? Right. Right? How'd that feel? <laughs> that odd? Well, it bothered your mother. <laughs> I know it did. She'd be like, I am. <laughs> 35 years at the university and because uh, yeah because people would then start to go hey you're alex's mom she's like wait no no <laughs> she'd get fired up about that um favorite moment when i played favorite moment yes when i played at, at uc probably the game where you scored eight points I think it was. I, I like that. Seven, though. Seven? Seven. Seven points. I should have had ten, but Aaron McGee shot that terrible hook uh, shot. He should have been kicked out to me, which Huggins ripped him for that. But, yeah, the nickel state, seven seven points. I was on fire. And the other 
the other favorite moments when uh, DePaul. Oh yeah, remember your buddy at, on DePaul mm-hmm. who's a walk-on? Yeah, Brian Cashin. And you guys are trading crew. three-pointers. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, he uh, he was talking trash. We were good buddies though, but he was talking trash. He had three on me, and Reuben Patterson then cussed me out because I didn't go back at him and. And uh, I go back at him and hit a three, so we went back and forth. Yeah, that was definitely a great, great memory, great, great, great game. How about the um, Great Alaska Shootout? Oh, well, there's one before that when you played West Virginia. Remember when guy shot the ball? Ruben no. just barely tipped the ball, but the ball went into the basket. That was the tournament game. Tournament game. That was the NCAA tournament game. Yes, and we would have gone to Anaheim. Uh, we would have made it to the Sweet 16. Yep. But the game where Hugs put you and somebody else in because he, he was ripping somebody because they were just terrible. Yeah, yep. That was the Great Alaska Shootout. And he, that was the first game of three. Mm-hmm. The names he called you guys, you can't repeat on the podcast. Uh, you two yeah. go in. Yep, yep. Well, what happened was, so we're, we're in Alaska, and um, we've got to win three games to win the tournament. And the... Basically, the team to beat was Duke. Duke's number one in the country. Uh, five of the starters go on to the NBA, get drafted. Uh, they're by far the best team. We're, we're, we're a solid team, Kenyon Martin, so forth and so on. And, um, you know, basically, we've got to win the first game to eventually play Iowa State. Uh, Iowa State was definitely a formidable opponent. If we beat Iowa State, we, we face off against Duke. And, and Hugs really thought we had a great chance to beat Duke in that first game that we play um, Southern – uh, was it Southern Idaho or whatever it was? Um, Huggins was so upset with the starters, and he knew he had some leeway with that because it was a game we should win, and the starters weren't playing well. So he thought it was a great moment to teach a lesson there. Um, he goes, "All five of you go in." He didn't realize that, like Sean Myrick and I, who guys who didn't play very much, were part of that five. So we go on in, and Sean Myrick used to call us the Dirty Birds. So all the guys on the bench, myself, Donald, Little, we, he caught, we, Sean would always call us the Dirty Birds because we always did the dirty work. So we went in there, and um, we played almost that entire first half. And um, so Huggins comes into halftime, and he, he's ripping the, ripping the team, and how if it wasn't for us, the Dirty Birds, That's right. that we wouldn't have been in that game. And so I'll never forget this. We come out second half, and Sean Myrick like, has his warm-up off thinking we're about to start. And Hugs goes, all right, starters go out. And Sean's like, what about the Dirty Birds? <laughs> Hugs like, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> so out goes Kenyon, Pete Bike on that old crew. That was it for the Dirty Birds. But I played a good game that game. Yeah. I had a good game. I remember throwing a post pass to Donald Little, kick it out, hit a three. And that was definitely one of my one of my favorite games, uh, for sure. Um, and obviously, you've been a faithful faithful Bearcat ticket holder, both football and basketball uh, for years. You've kind of seen it all. You've seen the, you know, at one point, if we talk about when the Bearcats played at the Gardens, there were, the average attendance was like 3,172, you know, and it went from that to 13,176 at the Fifth Third Arena. And then, you know, you think about the football program at one point, um, you know, there was, there'd be football games and there was nobody there. You know, you could lay down on the bleachers. Um, now, I mean, it's packed, tailgating's um, unbelievable, and you've definitely been a um, a faithful season ticket holder. Why? Why? Well, 
goes back to the first game I went to as a Bearcat. My first. I don't know this story. I know. <laughs> I'm in the stands. They're playing Miami of Ohio. Now, remember, I just graduated from Miami of Ohio. So at the time, I'm a Redskins. Okay. okay? Well, Miami scores. I jump up. This guy from the psychology department became my friend. Say, Bob, have you looked at your paycheck lately? All <laughs> right. I said, That's oh, a, okay. Yeah. So that point on, you... Became, I was a bearcat for life then. <laughs> you were a bearcat. Um, gosh, unfortunately, this might be the first year um, in a long time that you're not going to hit any games because of the COVID. Right. I mean, it, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with basketball. Football, I mean... Even if they do have limited capacity, I don't think you're going to go, right? Not if it's limited, no. Yeah. It'd be the first uh, first time, um, which is unfortunate. But, um, by the way, we got to talk about that, what they're going to do with – because you got the season tickets, right? Got the season tickets. What I did was uh, they gave three options. You could take your tickets and send them over to 2021 – you could take part of your uh, tickets, your parking, your UCATs, and donate that to the university, mm -hmm. but maintain your your tickets. Mm -hmm. So I sent my parking and UCATs money to the university to be used this year, but my tickets I kept. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, okay. I, I, f I forgot to ask you what, what was going on with that. Um, and and you've, seen, you've seen a lot. At the university, um, currently the head football coach, Fickle, mm -hmm. uh, Coach Brandon, head basketball coach. What are your thoughts on Coach Fickle and what he's doing with the football program, and also your thoughts on Coach Brandon and what he's doing with the basketball program? Because you've seen a lot of coaches during your time. I was probably on every search committee in football from 1978 until I left. Which was what year? 1994 when I left. So I was on every search yep. committee anytime there was a coach. Uh, I don't know Coach Fickle very well, but probably from a football standpoint, he's probably the best coach that UC's had. Uh, probably on a par with a guy at uh, Notre Dame. What's his name? Brian Kelly. Kelly. Brian Kelly. Kelly was, Kelly was a good coach. He was. He was a great fundraiser. A, a great. He was great at getting the community engaged with with Bearcat football, kind of on a level of a Bob Huggins. Mm -hmm. I know people got upset with how he left, but you got to <clears throat> give him a lot of credit. But people didn't realize that uh, he was a he is a Catholic, and he always wanted to be the coach of Notre Dame. Yeah. So when he got a chance to do that. I mean, the way he left was not a good way. He could have done better, right? A better job than he did on that. But uh, yeah, notwithstanding, he did a good job in in building the program up. And we missed the national championship game oh. by one or two seconds. I always sports is inches and seconds. That's 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 the difference. We'd have played for the national championship. Thoughts on Coach Brandon? Brandon? Yep. The thing I like about Brennan is 
I like his recruits for one thing. I okay. agree. I like the way he recruits. Uh, I like his bench mannerisms. I mean, he's not he's not a screamer. I mean, he might say some things that you don't right. you can't hear because you're in the stands, but uh, outwardly he does not. He's not demonstrable and just screams and so forth. I mean, right. And and you watch his style. I like his style too. Mm-hmm. His coaching style. I think he lets the guys play. Yeah, well, I agree with that. You know, he. This could be. I think if if things keep moving in the direction they are, we could be looking at maybe in the thinking the first time in the the history of UC athletics. And I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong on this, but. Um, we could see Bearcat basketball and Bearcat football consistently in like the top ten. Oh yeah, am I right? Would that be the first time? I mean, I, I don't. I mean, yeah, they, they might have done it before, but consistently, I could see both having the recruits, having the success, and being in the top ten at the same time consistently. Well, remember we were number one with Kenyon in basketball. I was there. The number one team in the country. Couple, yeah, yeah. Couple, but, couple but times. Football, football wasn't we never, there. We never really. I mean, at the same time. Yeah. The same time. Yeah, that didn't happen. Uh, I think preseason rankings have come out, and we're in the top twenty right now. Football. Okay. Top twenty. I haven't seen any of them. And that's one of the rankings, and one person predicts that they'll go to a. One of the big bowls. That was this Desmond year. Howard, I believe. Yeah, the, the, I the, the, one of the big bowls. But he's got Fickle's got some players. He does. I mean, he's he got does. some players. So, um, let me ask you this: You said players leads to my next question. I know it's tough, probably tough for you to do this. I just did it. Um, in basketball, who is your favorite basketball player of all time for the wow. Bearcats? Whoa. You can't you can't put me in there, okay? We already know I'm <laughs> I'm number one, but my favorite player. Favorite player. Probably my favorite player. On court performance day. That's what I'm talking about. On probably Nicky Van Exel. I agree. And on I mean, I, I'm unbelievable. No question. Who who was your so you you dealt like I said you you dealt with these players on a different level. Who who was your favorite player just to interact with and deal with during your time, basketball specific? Probably uh, Lavertis Robinson. Oh, Lavertis is a great, isn't he? Great guy. I mean, he he's unbelievable. He is unbelievable. And 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 Roger McClendon would be right there too. I mean, Roger was, you know, outstanding student and player. I mean, the guy could, I mean, he could flat out shoot. I mean, he was a. Um, engineer major incredible incredible person incredible family I want to read something to you dad um, so on the court definitely um, Nick Van Exel uh, my favorite um, off the court um, my favorite is Terry Nelson I think Terry has always been he's been that personality he was that with the final four team um, even after he played, he he stayed engaged. You know, it was a lot of the former players. He's kind of become that that uncle of the Bearcat family. <clears throat> and so I text him, and I said, "Hey, I'm interviewing my dad for the podcast. Do you want to share a few words?" And he said, "For sure." He said, uh, "This is from Terry Nelson to you, Doctor Meacham, 
Dr. Meacham, is the most patient man I know. Whenever I would visit him in his office, he would always handle my crisis situation and minimize it by giving me facts and a game plan to tackle the problems. He never made the faces or subtle comments at the poor grades. He would tell me what, I, uh, what to do, and I would do it. Even to this day, he's the kindest man I know, Terry Nelson. Yep, Terry's, Terry's right up there. He's a, yeah, Terry's great. Yeah, Lavertus, Terry. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And Roger, <laughs> I, I agree. And Roger, yeah. I, and I interviewed I interviewed Roger, uh, Terry on the podcast, and obviously uh, Roger and all of them um, had tremendous things to say about you as well. Um, I do I do want to bring this up quickly. Is so through your time at the university, um, I, I I guess, and I don't know when this happened, but. Um, if it was brought up that there needed to be a um, a connection between the athletic department and the community, um, you got connected to Talbert House, and that was through the athletic department at the time, correct? Wasn't there a connection? Am I right or wrong? Well, I was actually referred by someone else, but the connection came out that we had a something like a team, Cincinnati, Talbert House, and the University of Cincinnati Athletic Department. Mm -hmm. We had golf tournaments. Right, I remember and, those. Uh, Tony Yates, Tom Thacker, uh, I forget who else. George Wilson. George Wilson was there. Yeah. Did, All those people would show up at the, at the golf outings. They didn't play, but they, they were there to meet and greet with the, the people who were supporting Talbert House. Now tell, tell, tell everyone what Talbert House does and is quickly. Okay. Talbert House has approximately 800 employees, and services range from mental health services, uh, substance abuse, uh, programs for women who are addicted, and have children who are addicted as a result of the mother's addiction. Right. Uh, driver intervention, people who've gotten DUIs, they go through a three-day program Right down on Reading Road at uh, Tennessee, by the cross uh, Thornton's gas mm -hmm. station. Yeah. And at the end of the three days, the DUI is wiped out. Mm. They go through some tests and so forth. Uh, interesting story is one guy appeared before the judge and he says, "I'm referring you to Talbot House Driver Intervention Program. You had to spend three days in a facility." And this guy said. Uh, no, I won't go. He said, you what? He said, I won't go. Fine. He fined him and jailed him. <laughs> the guy would not go. Just, I mean, they were going to be fed, housed. All he had to do was, was hmm. go. And we get the thing expunged. Hmm. But he never went. Hmm. So those are some of the services. Uh, and and uh, you served as the uh, chairman of the board? I chaired the board for two years. Mm -hmm. And I've been on the board f for 27 years. Wow. And, and, and that leads me to, to say that uh, just through your work with Talbert House, I got involved with Talbert House, originally got on the golf outing committee to help raise money, and then I was transitioned into the Fatherhood Project, which is a great um, project. We raise a lot of money for that. 
Um, and part of my responsibility uh, being on that committee is to, um, I, don't, I just kind of fell into this role, but um, when we have our annual luncheon to get speakers and guests and things like that, and I've kind of helped in um, making that happen. At one point I had uh, Mick Cronin. He came in and um, we honored him and his daughter was there. Um, Luke Fickle um, helped help make that happen and luke fickle was our, our guest speaker and then so into this month i'm interviewing coach brannon um for talbert house he is our guest speech speaker for our virtual luncheon and um coach brannon um attended the luncheon last year and, right. he, and he loved it and he, he just thinks it's such such great work and so when i asked him to be the guest speaker he didn't take two seconds. He said, yes, I'm in, whatever you need with, with Talbert House. So um, it's good to see that UC connection with Talbert House continue and um, help out the community. Um, so I want to get close to, close to wrapping this up here, but I do want to bring something up. So growing up, I grew up during that hip-hop era. I love hip-hop music. And I remember growing up, I would listen to, you know, Kid and Play, Big Daddy Kane, and I'd play these songs, and you always would be like, that's James Brown. And I'd be like, what? Like, that's James Brown. And then I'd, I'd play another rap song. Oh, that's James Brown. Public Enemy. Oh, that's James Brown. Watch Prince. Oh, that's James Brown. Michael Jackson. Oh, that's James Brown. Never understood what he meant. Years later, and I think to this day, if you look it up, the most sampled artist in hip-hop history is James Brown. Between the, the beats, the, 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 his vocals, it's always been in hip-hop music. And I didn't know that. And then like now I listen to Big Daddy Kane, and I hear that James Brown, Michael Jackson's inspiration was James Brown. I was listening to uh, the James Brown soundtrack from the movie the other day. And I'm like, man, I hear Prince in there. So all those things you said, I heard. So that leads me to say um, Chadwick Boseman passed away yeah. of uh, cancer that he had been battling for years, which is um, unbelievable that he was able to keep it quiet for one and then two um, to continue to do the movies, uh, which was very, very impressive that he was able to do that. But uh, you and I did his own dances. I mean, he, he did dances. Well, I was going to say, you and I went to see. You You told me, hey, because I don't go to the movies very much. And you said, hey, we're going to go see James Brown. So we went and saw the James Brown um, biopic. And uh, it was very, very well done. Uh, Chad, Chadwick Boseman was incredible. Because you went to C42 before that. You saw Joe yeah. Morgan there. Yeah, saw right? Joe. And, yeah. And as I was leading the theater, somebody said, hey, Bob, I turn around and said, Joe, Joe Morgan. Joe Morgan, one, so, of, the, one of the great Cincinnati so Reds. So we talked, yeah, Joe. Mm. He's not doing Joe's too well health-wise. Yeah, he's a great guy, too. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, Chad, Chadwick Boseman uh, was was a great actor, and we, we kind of share that in common that you're such a big James Brown fan, and then we went to see that uh, James Brown movie, and I could really understand after watching that movie and listening to his music how much he impacted the music that I listened to. Big Daddy Kane. Big Daddy Kane's your favorite rapper, right? Yep. Because he could lay down the whole history of the of the world in his raps. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Big Daddy. Big Daddy's the man. 
Well, listen, I want to thank you uh, for coming on the podcast, and I want to thank Eric Abercrombie for recommending. Because you know what? I didn't even think about, you know, all these guys I was interviewing had mentioned you. How's your dad doing? Tell your dad I said what's up. Um, and even I told you this the other day. I'm at the uh, landmark for an AU game, and Terry Nelson's refing the game. Uh, Bearcat great Terry Nelson. And Terry yells at me during the game. I'm sitting on the bench. I'm not coaching. I'm sitting at the end of the bench watching one of my teams play. And Terry yells during the game, points at me and goes, see that guy right there? If it wasn't for his dad, I wouldn't have graduated. He yelled this in front of the entire – this was two weeks ago – in front of everybody in Landmark. And then shortly after that, a week later, is when Eric calls me and says, you need to interview your father. And I totally agree with that um, because there's so many stories in the history behind, you know, Hugs getting hired, the building of the arena, and all that stuff that I thought would be good for, for you to share. Any parting words you want to? I don't know if I should tell you this story or not, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Hey, we, we can edit it, right, Stu? <laughs> yeah, you, can edit, you can edit this if you want to. Chop, chop, chop. But, is it about me? No. Oh. Your mom and I had decided we were going to take a vacation to New Mexico. We're going to go to Taos and uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. So we arranged the tickets, airlines, hotel, everything. Well, this was the Friday before the opening football game at UC. So there was a meeting with athletic director Rick Taylor. Well, George Walterman opens his big mouth and says, we got one player that's ineligible. And Taylor's face turns red. Who's that? And I said, uh, Thomas Sampson. And he said, I said, he's got an incomplete. He can't play. I said, if it's going to be taken care of, Dr. Hammett, Nancy Hammett, and one of my advisors already met with the faculty member. He's done the work. His grade will be changed, and he'll be able to, to play. And he said, uh, cancel your vacation. Rick Taylor did. And I said, you already approved my vacation. He said, cancel your vacation. Well, I talked to a member of the board of directors whose name I'll won't mention, physician in the city. He said, go on your vacation. When you get back, call me. Hmm. So get back to vacation. There's a note on my desk. See me as soon as you walk into your office. So I go down, and Rick Taylor looks at me, and he said, uh, don't ever do that to me again. I said, do what? And he said, uh, leave when I tell you not to leave. I said, you, you signed off on my vacation. And he, can't, he was getting angry. And he said, uh, you better leave before I get angry. I said, I don't care whether you get angry or not. Mm-hmm. You know? So I left his office. Later I found out, this, this was unbelievable. He called Delta Airlines while my wife and I were on the flight and asked them to stop the flight and take me off the flight. Hmm. Needless to say, we, we took off. Yeah. And went on to New Mexico. Well, and here's the final, the coup d'etat. Uh, 
the president, Joe Steger, calls me and he said, Bob, we're going to get rid of Taylor. So now you're going to get a call from Northwestern University and you tell them he's the greatest athletic director in the history of athletics. He won. So he get the job. Be sure and get the job. Oh, so yeah, he got the so, job so, and he would leave. He would leave. So he'd tell me he's the greatest athletic director. Did they call you? And what'd you say? The greatest athletic in history. <laughs> and he was gone. He was he was gone. And then who took over? Who took over after Rick Taylor? I can't even remember. Oh, it's a guy from uh, Illinois State, was it? Because this was getting close got, to my to the time I was going to leave. You were getting ready to retire. And yeah, this, I, can't, I can't even remember that far. Because this guy was. He was f- more flesh than he was substance. Mm. And so Joe Steger came to my office and he said, uh, would you do me a favor? And I said, what's that? He said, stay for another year and help this guy just get through another year so we, <laughs> we can mm-hmm. get another athletic director. Yeah. And I said, Joe, I said, there's a time you know when you should leave that you shouldn't hang around any longer. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm gone. Yeah. Got to know. Got to know when you got to go. Yeah. And with that being said, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast, Dad. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's my... To drum up all those stories. I have so many more that I could go on for. I'm sure you do. Some that are probably be heard on the podcast. Some that can't. (laughs) I'm sure you got some of those, right? Um, well, hey, listen, um, I want, like I said, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, also, again, you can hit me up on social media on Twitter and IG at Alex underscore Meacham. Meacham spelled M-E-A-C-H-A-M. I'm also on Facebook, LinkedIn as Alex Meacham. On Snapchat, Big Meach 41 And Stu, might be dancing on TikTok very soon. Um, my father, by the way, does not have um, any social media, so you can't hit him up. Um, he definitely doesn't have TikTok, right? You know what TikTok is, Dad? I just know that the uh, President of the United States doesn't like TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) This I heard, this I heard. Does it come out of the Far East, out of of China? I I think that's where it was developed, right, in in China. So that's that's a whole other mess of a story. Um, So anyway... I want to thank everyone for listening to Season 2 of The Bearcat Basketball Podcast. Once again, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alex underscore Meacham. Meacham spelled M-E-A-C-H-A-M. I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn, Alex Meacham. I'm on Snapchat, BigMeach41. And I'm now dancing on TikTok, at Alex Meacham 41 I appreciate everyone listening to the Bearcat Basketball Podcast. Go Bearcats!